Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm Chris Gase. Today, we're talking speed, but not necessarily the kind that comes from hard work, although we touch on things like coaches and training plans as the first and most important step to buying speed, if you will. This episode is about what makes you faster by focusing on aerodynamics and reducing drag or that CDA coefficient that is so important. This is an episode about the things that directly bring speed. We're joined by our friend and colleague, Ben Delaney, who has spent decades riding and reviewing countless bikes and pieces of gear for brands like VeloNews and Bike Radar, as well as time in the industry with bike brand Specialized. He takes us through his tiered hierarchy of options when it comes to spending your way to a faster you. And though I say it, the start of every episode today, I really mean it. Let's make you fast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm Chris Case, sitting down today with Coach Trevor Connor and special guest Ben Delaney. Hey Chris, hey Trevor, and hey Fast Talk listeners, glad to be with you. Glad to have yeah. you on the show. Hey listeners, we hope you have considered joining Fast Talk Labs, our personal training center for science-minded athletes like you. Every other week, we unlock member-only stories for free. Just sign up free to see them. Recently, we've unlocked Trevor's deep dive on how to execute 5x5 intervals, Dr. Seiler's analysis of Molly Seidel's training for her record-breaking marathon, the most powerful features of intervals.icu, and our guide to the Training Peaks performance management chart. If you haven't joined at our free listener member level, you're definitely missing out. Free articles and videos are waiting for you at fasttalklabs.com. Join today at our free listener member level. Great to have you on for the first time ever. We're approaching episode 200 and we haven't had you on. For those who don't know Ben, he's very famous in the bike world. He was editor-in-chief of Vela News oh, quite a while ago. Then he jumped over to Bike Radar. He's ridden a lot of bikes in his life. He's now with Outside Interactive Media doing bike stuff again. Kind of a jack of all trades. How many bikes have you ridden in your, uh, test bikes, that is? Uh, bikes in general in your life, Ben? Precisely 274 and a half oh, bicycles. Wow. Chris, he, I, I really I want to know about that half. I, uh, sometimes the bicycles have ended up in halves and pieces. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, you that, that's another the, reason why you're yeah, famous, yeah, actually. No, I've been, yeah, I, I love riding bikes, and I love writing about bikes. And I've been lucky enough to do this for a better part of 20-plus years now. And even I yeah, had a little stint at uh, Specialized Bicycles on the, on the other end of the coin. Mm-hmm. Does that mean I know anything about these? Uh, we, well, we shall you, well see, we're trying but. to establish your credentials for being on this episode. Sorry, so, yes. Yes, you yes. know you know your stuff. Yeah, I got to say, one of the worst weeks of my life is you guys gave, I won't give the name of the, the company, but you guys gave me these prototype, like $8,000 set of wheels because I was going down to 8000 Those are expensive wheels. They, they were something ridiculous. Like, I didn't even want to touch them. They were so expensive. I was going down to this this five-day stage race. You guys are like, here, take these and test them for us. Let us know what you think. So took them. First day in the race, I crack one in half. Which wheels were these? I have zero memory of this. These were some MVs. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So cracked it in half. I'm spending the whole time at the race going, I don't know what to do because I can't afford to replace <laughs> these wheels. They're going to fire me. They're going to kill me. I come back. I hand them to you guys like, I'm so sorry. I, I destroyed one of the wheels. And your response was, Great. Now we got our story. <laughs> Real world testing for sure. Yeah. 
So if you haven't gathered already, today we're talking tech. It's it's rare for us at Fast Talk to talk tech, but Ben is going to help us answer the question, what are the most cost-effective ways to get faster? Kind of a, if you only had 2000 bucks in your pocket, how should you spend it to get faster? That's the question today. Ben, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. So we've established your credentials. We've established that you crash bikes and break stuff, <laughs> sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. But let's start off with the sort of that first tier of things that you should invest in if you've got this cash and you want to go faster. Sure. Well, let me, let me come at you another way and, okay. and break it down into three types of things of how to get fast. There's, Absolutely. There's you, Ooh. my friends, yes. mm-hmm. making yourself faster. Number of ways you can do that. And then there's the the power ratios, power to weight or power to CDA. Mm-hmm. I think those are like the three main types of ways you can you can improve without spending money and you can improve by spending money. That's how I'd go about those blocks. I see. Gotcha. Well, then let's start with the you in this equation. Yeah, if you want to talk about the, the most cost effective. Yeah. yeah. Go, you know. Eddie Merck style, go ride upgrades, right? <laughs> yes. Ride your or, bicycle. Or listen, listen to Fast Talk. Listen to Heed Fast Talk. Heed their advice. Yes. Do these things. Yeah. Work on the engine. Yeah. And, yeah. and don't follow my example and and you know, drink less beer for the, uh, <laughs> the power to weight ratio. Yeah. Yeah, so that is that is what you guys go into on a regular basis is, is the you, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Another part of the you in terms of you know weight aside and power aside is, is the drag. Mm-hmm. Don't be a drag, man. That is a way you can get faster without spending money or by spending money. So the high dollar way would be to go into a wind tunnel, go to San Diego, go to North Carolina, have experts fine tune your CDA in a position that is sustainable. That's what the pros do, and that works. Have you spent time on a wind tunnel? Yeah, I've been in, I don't know, five or six wind tunnels, uh, a few in Europe and Germany and France. San Diego. For the purposes of refining that CDA or just for the fun of it or both? Um, primarily for product launches when a company is trying to tout its latest mm-hmm. whiz-bang gizmo, whether that's a wheel set or a bike, sometimes clothing. Uh, and then in a few instances, have dovetailed getting on there myself as a, just an example and mm-hmm. have been told that I look terrible. <laughs> well, I was going like, to bring up the, the fact that you're not really Like the broad shoulders are nice in a suit, but uh, on a TT bike, yeah, not, not so much. much but, yeah. That is a way to, to, to get faster. How and, much and can, can someone expect to gain from that process? Can you give us any indication of that to put you on the spot? One Perhaps the, considerable amount. Well, one of, the, one of the fun things about yeah, getting faster is... is how do you measure this, right? And over what distance, over what speed? Because it all—it's—it's it's a big ball of wax. Mm-hmm. Forty kilometers is sort of a standard thing. Has become a standard, yes. Um, and maybe I could, you know, back it up a bit from the the high end wind tunnel to testing I did on a velodrome a while back, trying to establish like what's the fastest sustainable position, and just going from. And I'm going to listeners show with my body here and try to articulate what I'm talking about. Going from riding with straight arms on the tops of the, the bike like you would, you know, riding around town to just bending your elbows, mm-hmm. you know, that over 40K could save you, like, going hard, like, up to six minutes. Like, I did a, did a test at, you know, keeping 250-watt standard. For anybody that knows you, that's soft pedaling. You know, just, <laughs> you know, it was like a 64 and up watt savings. 
Just by bending your elbows. Just by bringing the torso down, effectively. That's like the the easiest rule of thumb or rule of elbow that I could give someone. Rule of elbow. And and most most of you who are listening to this, you know know this. You probably are an enthusiast cyclist of some stripe. And you know, like, getting low gets faster. And you Mm -hmm. also know there's, you hit a point of diminishing returns. That if you've got your face plastered on your top tube, you're probably not super comfy and that's not sustainable. But yeah, bending your elbows, you go faster. Yeah, there's that sweet spot. You get down to a certain point where you just can't generate the same amount of power and you're really not gaining much in aerodynamics. So you're, you're trying to find that sweet spot of, of being low enough that you can still put out power, still be comfortable, but get that, reduce that drag. Yes. Anyway, as you guys know, for the time trials, it's interesting to watch them dork out and funny to see how human psychology affects even the very best. For yes. instance, Fabian Contelar, the night before key events, will want to futz with his position mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. like teams of the world's leading experts in aerodynamics and physiology have fine-tuned his position and be like oh, maybe if i just got lower like what no 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 yeah, no and we've had dr pruitt say that very thing on this <laughs> he show. Worked with yeah Cantalera. you know yeah yeah and yeah. uh yeah i saw that saw him in a time trial that he lost where he dropped those handlebars down an inch inch and a half yeah and called him up and said put them back up put them where i had them yeah yeah, and I've worked with Andy and other folks like with, with Tom Bonin at, at yep. the velodrome testing. So it's it's one thing to show people numbers, but people need to feel it too. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and this was always for most of us just feeling both the speed differential and the effort differential is enough. You know, whether you're riding fast downhill and just messing with your position, seeing how much of a difference that makes, riding with an open jacket, flapping around versus zipping up and seeing how much of a difference that makes. You know, even just like having your hand out the window, that's an yep. easy way to see like get the idea. Yeah, the physics physics is real. Turns out, well, I mean, the the poor man's wind tunnel is is exactly like that. You, you just find a hill and basically descend it. Don't really pedal or pedal softly and time yourself to get from one point to another point on that downhill, and then start adjusting your position and see can you speed yourself up? Can you slow it down? And this is. You're not trying to generate power because you don't want to get faster just because you're pedaling harder. It's really about seeing how you can improve the aerodynamics. Likewise, another way to do it is just use a flat stretch of road that you keep riding and just get yourself up to, to like 40 kilometers an hour and then see how you can bring the power down. Yep. And I would plug an article that Leonard and Leonard Zinn, famous Leonard Zinn and I worked on back when I was at Velo News that we did this exact thing, this roll-down test with all the different tuck positions, um, and I was the guinea pig, and I had to climb a mountain road in Boulder. How many and times car, did you do it? I don't know, 75 times for all these different positions to see which was, this was before the super tuck was banned, so. And that, that was testing descending positions. It, it, correct, it was. So, so that's, was. That's, that's, that brings another point of like trying to get faster how. Are mm-hmm. we talking about coasting? Are we talking about climbing? Are we talking about flats? And that's part of the fun of it is like you have to sure you can't optimize for all the things at once. <laughs> right. But it's right. fun to dork out on okay, what are we trying to accomplish here? Are we trying to go yeah. uphill fast? Are we gonna go British hill climb time trial style of you know, drillium parts and chopping off things? Yes. Right. Well, I feel like the context we're talking about here is mostly speed in terms of aerodynamics on a flat surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um your maybe stereotypical speed in cycling, not climbing. Um, and, 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 and I, yeah, I, I bring, I mentioned the AeroTuck test that we did only to emphasize the point that you can really 
understand the differences in speed just by body position by doing it on a hill like that. Yep, and yep. then that can inform your position when you are pedaling on a flat road as well. You're certainly not going to sit in a super tuck position, but finding the place where your elbows are tucked in, where you can maintain power but still feel like you're aerodynamic. Being on the hoods, honestly, with bent elbows versus being in the drops. Some would argue, maybe there's data to support this, that being in the drops is slower than being low but maintaining your hand position on the hoods. And then, of course, bar width and all of these other things. We're, we're kind of straying from the original point, which was let's talk about you and how you in this equation of speed can, can get faster. I'm not sure where we jumped off, but Ben, jump back on, would you? Let's jump back <laughs> on with, with stretchy pants and stretchy clothes. Okay. <laughs> uh, that can make a huge difference. I worked at Specialized for a short period and... Sorry to interrupt, but they're yeah. famous for that video. They're famous for a lot of things, but they're famous for the video about, and maybe you're not even going here, but the leg hair that they right. claimed, sure, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. saved a certain amount of time. Yeah. So my friend Mark Cody and I are responsible for the "arrow is everything" slogan. Really? So I was writing up a paper for Craig Alexander, head of the 2011 Kona. I want to say Ironman champion. Yep. Launching the Shiv, a, a very aerodynamic at the time, uh, time trial bike. And I was like, what are the talking points here? And I was like, well, for the bicycle portion of this race, aerodynamics is everything. And Cody's like, that's it. I'm like, well, that's what? He's like, that aer- arrow is everything. Yeah, well, not technically, it's not everything, but there's a lot of things. Like, no, that, that, that's <laughs> that's it. what a slogan is. Yeah. Yeah. And that is so much of it, especially if we're talking about moving on relatively flat ground, it's you're trying to overcome aerodynamic drag. And back to the point of you, you are the biggest drag. People are the, the biggest drag on the bike. Changing your position is one thing that's free. Wearing tight clothes makes a huge difference. Some of the numbers that the specialized gang put together for like, going from normal cycling clothes, like not wearing bell bottoms and a trench coat, but like regular cycling clothes and <laughs> right. a regular helmet to wearing like a full-on super tight skin suit could save as much as like a minute and a half on a 40K time trial. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can debate the particulars of those numbers. Well, on whom and what position at what when angles, yada, yada, yada. But just to yeah. try to get like basic a basal, a- apples, yeah. apples, having a felt profile makes a big difference. And yeah, and we're not even talking about material differences at this point. The skin suits with, with, uh, yeah, with dimples on the dimples front layer, like and ribs, trip, ribs trip and all, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But in that, obviously that when you start getting into that, it costs more and more money as yeah. you get more and more sophisticated clothing. Where's the breaking point there? Is it worth it to pay $600 for a skin suit? Yeah. For most people, that's not. Yes. So that's the question I want to ask, because you're, you're having more and more cyclists now that are moving away from the bibs in their jersey to the, the speed suit, even in road races. So it's kind of like a skin suit, but it has some pockets in it so you can fit some food. Is that worth the money? Because those tend to be pretty expensive. Is that going to get you any gains in a road race? Yeah, because I think that's pretty close to, again, it depends on like what, are, what are you coming from? Are you already wearing super tight cycling clothing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's marginal gains territory. Right, I would argue that most times it probably would be would be faster, but yeah, air, the clothing, tight clothing, aero helmet, again, easy. The leading edge stuff is often referred to as some of the more important areas. The leading edge that's first hitting the wind that you're pushing out of the way. Yeah. So that's why the aero helmet 
would be another place to get significant gains, perhaps, for a lesser quantity of dough. Yeah, again, like, you know, specialized wind tunnel numbers, they throw like a, you know, 30 seconds over uh, 40K. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, it's, the, it's the frontal shape and then also how the air flows over the top of the object, which is you. So the part of the helmet that can actually make some of the biggest difference is having a visor on the helmet. That was quite surprising. They did some wind tunnel testing. But then are you prepared to pay the sartorial price for this of (laughs) looking like a Spaceballs Doofenshmirtz for having a visor hanging down over your nose? Here's the thing you got to remember, Ben. You're talking to someone who often looks like a Doofenshmirtz. The the doofiest of the Doofenshmirtzes. I'm sorry, Trevor, but... Well, and this looks, just, just for sorry, the are, are we still on script here? Was this part of the outline? <laughs> I think so. I did the section of my. Oh, quickly, we went to. Well, Trevor looks like a doofenshmirtz. Well, can, well, so to that response, listeners, for the record, I'm sitting here in stretchy pants. So that's I, true. So you I, are. I feel time is fully entitled to, to mock people who look like myself. But in our locker behind us, I actually do have a helmet with a visor, and that is because I was at Vela News one day. And you guys had just tested this helmet, and nobody at Bella News wanted this helmet. So <laughs> I walked in, and everybody's like, here, Trevor, have a helmet. I think the brand is Doofenshmirtz. <laughs> I'd never heard of that brand, but I thought it was perfect for the, you. The, the, the very front of things is interesting, looking at, uh, you know, our, our friend Ashton Lambie, or, you know, some specialized, you know, he's got a big mustache. He also has, like, that platypus-looking pock helmet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, different helmets. A f- fit with different body shapes in different ways, but there's been testing done on people with beards and and other stuff going on on the front that doesn't seem to affect things as much as you'd think. But hmm. maybe facial hair and visors are two different things. <laughs> right. right. More testing is needed on this. More testing is the visor needed. versus the beard. It could be but the combination yeah, of things. Yeah, helmets. Too. That, you know, a good helmet, thirty seconds. Yep. Good clothing. You know, more than a minute. Again, talking the the forty k distance. Yeah. What about Stuff like, uh, is there any way to even quantify arrow bars versus non-arrow handlebars? And I'm talking like... Yeah, you're making hand gestures here. So, so not like triathlon arrow, arrow bars, extensions, but, but, air, but like an envy arrow yeah, where bar the where, like, flat, where the, hoods, the hoods are narrower than the drops. And yes. Yeah, yes, that for sure works. And I would sort of put that under the U part of like you're shaping how your body sits on the bike and mm, that can be done I with... See. Like how you twist your wrists or, you know, you just turn your hoods inward on your existing 42 bars or, yeah, or you spend a couple hundred dollars on a different mm-hmm. handlebar. But again, there's, yeah, that, that can be faster, but you, you go like all van ship on it and go to like a 20 centimeter width and your wrists are basically touching and, yeah. uh, and then you hit a little rock and fall down. Yeah, there's the leverage, control or you're issue not breathing is, or et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So uh, I, w- yeah, I would recommend fine tuning the position ahead of spending a ton of money on a handlebar. Just go with right. what fits and what's comfortable and safe and feels good in your hands. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right. Uh, is it time to move beyond you? Yes. Or- but enough about you. Let's talk about stuff. <laughs> Let's talk about stuff. Sure. Do you have any tiers here when it comes to stuff? Any categorization, if you will, of the first tier, second tier, third tier items that you would encourage people to look at? Yes. Um, so if if we're gonna put helmets as part of you and not stuff, you know, because like that's kind of like, yeah, that's, that's there's halfway a line. in between. Right? Yeah, the boundary between you and stuff is the helmet. Wheels and tires are definitely a thing. Chains and chain lube probably sits above as far as like easy recommendations 
from free to like super dork expense. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then the bike frame would, would come a distant third. I got so you. So like chain slash lube is one, wheels and tires is a second category, and then the than the bicycle itself. Let's start with the Cliff Notes version of the chain and lube. Based on everything that you've read, all the research that's been done by people in-house at Vela News, all the stuff you know about chains, what's the recommendation on chains and lube? Wax is the fastest. Are you prepared to put that sort of time yeah, in? Yeah, I just can't care that much. Right, that's <laughs> you know? my feeling. But um, there are, I know, there I know are, you're not asking me like what I do, but like as far as like, you know, recommending things... Our friends, like at stages, for instance, Pat Warner is a is a doofenshmirtz of the nth degree for <laughs> he waxes. Oh, oh, he not only does he, you know, he's got dedicated crock pots. Well, just, so so one chain is is stewing, the other chain's on the bike and can pop between the two, and and yes, it's faster. It's measurably, demonstrably faster. How much? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, so my, yeah, that's, like my buddy Tom Robot loves to like laugh that if if you added up all the marketing claims of like, well, this you know the chain saves you this and the lube saves you that and the tires, he's like, I shouldn't have to pedal anymore. <laughs> right, it's, or it's you, easily like two hundred fifty watts. Or you're I going backwards be, in time, or I something. I should just be coasting along on an e-bike like ride with all these savings. Yeah, five watts. Yeah, yeah, it's yep. it's it's very small, um, but small but measurable. But you know, just keeping your chain clean. And the chain lubed, that's an easy one. Yeah. And that's why I kind of want to move on from, that's why I asked for the cliff notes there. Sure. Because you, it's, do it or not, yeah. it's not a big deal. It's not a huge difference. Yeah. If you're trying to win state time trial championships, go ahead and do it. Yeah. Otherwise, just clean your chain occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> you should be fine. Yeah, just basic bicycle hygiene. Yeah, Oops. yeah. So what's the, the sweet spot of in between? What do you usually use to lube? And what sort of chain do you use? How frequently do you, do you replace it? Well, I'm on test bikes all the time. Fair. Uh, so I'm spoiled and I don't think I count. I've been messing around with a few different waxes. Like Allied out of Arkansas has a Grax gravel wax because everything is gravel, right? That works pretty well. Yeah, I use a wax-based lube. Uh, we live in a dry place here in Colorado, so we can get away with a wax-based lube. It's clean. It comes off, and, you know, you have to reapply it fairly frequently, but it, it stays clean and it runs smooth. I use squirt. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I'll add the little trick I've had is I do think once a chain gets stretched, you start losing a lot. For sure, um, absolutely. So I tend to be more during the season when I'm at the, the peak of racing, I'll usually replace my chain before it's needed. But I don't throw the chain out. I hang on to it. And, and do then, what with it? Well, then the winter like I put it back or, on. Okay. Not too, well, I, I do have some jewelry. If you have, <laughs> if you have extra chains laying around right now, you could you probably could make a lot, of money. Sell for <laughs> a lot of money. Which I'm glad of because I'm going to get through the whole winter on used change because in the middle of, January, who cares if you run a chain into the ground? But don't run into the ground during the season. That'll slow you down. You mentioned wheels as well and wheels and tires. Let's talk about those. Yeah, wheels can make a big difference. You know, reduce your overall CDA to the tune of like 3 to 5%, something like this. Even on rolling terrain, again, speed dependent. But yeah, that's a relatively easy one in there. The balance is, besides cost, how comfortable are you in crosswinds? Mm -hmm. But like a 50 mil wheel seems to be a sweet spot for a lot of folks of like it's measurably faster and it doesn't feel sketchy when an 18 wheeler passes you by. You've been running deep dish wheels for a long time and testing them, I'm sure. How much 
have you seen crosswind control improve over the years? Oh, it's gotten so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Now so anybody out there who's been like, ah, I, I ran 404s uh, 20 years ago and I could barely control my bike, they might want to give it another try. Yes, for sure. Just going from like the super pointy to the snub nose has made a big difference. And now it's, yeah. it feels more like it's a, yeah, it's definitely a pressure. It's noticeable. Mm-hmm. But it's like someone slowly applying pressure instead of somebody just bum rushing and knocking you over. <laughs> yes, right. So what would you recommend for somebody who's doing a lot of flat racing versus somebody who's climbing a lot in terms of wheels? What should you look for? Yeah, like that, you know, 40 to 50 mil depth is faster up to like a 4 or 5% grade. In a lot of ways, you get what you pay for. It's tough to discern the tiny differences, but more money in bikes typically means more efficient, typically lighter and or stiffer, you know? As so, a general rule. As a general rule. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly ways around it. Like, the wind doesn't care how much you spend. Head was an early developer of fairing aero wheels. That initially was like, oh, they're kind of cheesy. They're not actually real, but it's the same aerodynamic benefit as a full carbon structure and scooch heavier. But mm-hmm. And then tires. Yeah, and, and this goes a little bit back to wheels because wheels have not only improved in terms of the profile, but... The width has, they've grown in width to take advantage of some of the new data that supports wider is a little bit faster. Wider is faster in terms of rolling resistance. Yeah. I think we've gotten a little carried away. We, the the greater mass of bicycle people, that wider is faster, wider is faster, wider is faster. I'm like, okay, are we going to put fat bike tires on our road bikes because wider is faster? Yeah, rolling resistance typically goes down to a point. Yeah, Leonard and I sent a mess of... Uh, Roubaix tires and gravel tires to wheel energy to test rolling resistance. And and for the most part, it followed that that theory that going wider means less rolling resistance, but not always. And sometimes mm-hmm. when you get wide enough, that can decrease. Was, did you see a breaking point? Well, we were looking at like, you know, 28, 30, 32 mm-hmm. mil width tires for the most part. And, and typically 30s were faster than 28s. But then like some of the gravel tires when we were like in the 40-ish range, going up to a certain point, then that would get slower in terms of rolling resistance. This was on a r- rougher a surface. A rougher surface, yeah, trying, yeah. To, trying to replicate... Uh, Roubaix conditions. Roubaix and gravel conditions. Yeah. Rolling resistance is part of it. Aerodynamics is clearly part of it. And the faster you go, mm-hmm. the more arrow goes up as far as like how much things count. So that's why we're seeing... World Tour Peloton, people aren't running 32 mil tires unless it's Roubaix. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and obviously the the interface between the tire and the wheel all adds up, just like the interface between the wheel and the bike, and the bike and the rider, and the rider in front of you, the rider behind you. It all mm-hmm. all factors in. But mm-hmm. yeah, get you know, fifty mil wheels are faster than box section wheels if you're just talking about going flat fast, and then good high end tires, especially high end clincher tires with the latex tube, are faster than heavier less expensive and perhaps more durable tires. Mm-hmm. Tires is like, that's a kind of an easy one as far as bang for the buck. Yeah. But so they feel nice, which I think is important. Let's jump there quickly. So tubular, tubeless, and clincher. Yep. Which is fastest? In reverse order of what you just said. And it, it's not like all clinchers are faster than all tubulars. But in our testing and testing from other brands, the very fastest clinchers are faster than any other type of tire. 
So okay. like this, yeah, specialized turbo cotton is that's the one right now. Which is say that again so people hear it because it's not what a lot of purists and traditionalists think that they always thought tubulars. Maybe there was just this conflation that tubulars. The pros are using them. The pros always go with what's the best. Therefore, tubulars are the best for me. Right, right. Right. And tubulars are great in that if you have a flat in a pack of 200 other people, it's probably not going to come off the rim and you can ride it for a bit and put your hand up until some kind mm -hmm. of person hands you a brand new expensive wheel and puts it on for you and pushes <laughs> yeah. you back on the pillow. Right. right. So if that is your, if that's your reality, yeah, great. Although that even that is changing. Mm -hmm. You could say that some of that tire sponsors like mm, specialized, you know, pushing that hard is a marketing thing. Yeah. Which they are. Right. Um, yeah. But we've seen like, you know, going back to Tony Martin doing time trials, he was probably one of the first high profile athletes to win world titles on clinchers. And some of that was because you can get the aerodynamic shape of a clincher versus a super round tubular. Um, but a lot of that was rolling resistance. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So yeah, yeah, good clinchers. Tubeless is also fast if it's a good construction. And you know, I mean, we're talking like, for instance, in this last two sets of tests that we tire tests that we did, we were looking at you know like the fastest tires to the slowest tires were like a difference of ten watts for the gravel tires, and the the Paris-Roubaix tires were more like a delta of fifteen watts from the the fastest ones we tested to the slowest ones per tire. You know, again at the at like a thirty-five kilometer per hour speed. So yeah, a measurable mm -hmm. difference for sure. And those are all high end tires. So that's not like we were testing like a right a, a Walmart yeah yeah solid that. rubber you know will never flat tire versus yes like a handmade silk option right like Dugast a, yeah or something didn't test the garden hoses no. not this time. If I ever could have figured out how to do that in the winter, I would have bought in a garden hose and just cut it in half, and that'd be my <laughs> winter tire. The thicker and the more durable, the better. Oh, yeah. You know, There's a time and a place for them. Yeah. yeah. I always love talking about New Mexico stories, and the, the system was very much a thing for the fall and winter in New Mexico where you take an old clincher, you cut the beads off, and you tuck it inside of your new tire. Yep. So it's like an industrial Mr. Tuffy. Mr. Tuffy. I use Mr. Tuffy. felt like garbage, but you wouldn't be stopping every 10 yeah. minutes on a group ride. And then when you take them off, it feels great. That That's to be when people look at what I do in the winter or ask me about it, they're like, why would you do that? I'm like, trying to change a flat tire when it's negative 10 out <laughs> Celsius. So like... Because Canada. 13 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah. You won't ever want to do it again. So you make sure you ride something that, even if it goes flat, you might not notice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some of the other little pieces of clothing that you see when you walk up to the start of a time trial, you know, aero booties, sometimes even gloves, arm, you know, long sleeve skin suits. Thoughts there, Ben? At Unbound Gravel this year, I used the world's fastest socks. <laughs> that's, and that's socks. not even a time trial. That's a gravel <laughs> race. Yeah, small things can make a minute but measurable difference. Well, and so, you know, that's why the UCI... Being the the fussy boots that they are, you know, mandated that socks shall not rise above this certain level because yeah, it makes a difference. Like and with yeah. swimming suits or whatever. But I would also point out too, you're talking about small gains. If those small gains are extrapolated over 13, 14 hours at a gravel race, that can add up to a lot of savings. Yeah, cumulatively. Yes. If you're talking about a 10k TT. 
maybe you're not talking more than a second or a fraction of a second. So that that is to be considered when you're when you're making these decisions about arrow and happy to hear you use these beautiful arrow socks at Unbound. Yeah, I mean the longer you're out there and the weaker your engine is, the more important aerodynamics. <laughs> your engine are. isn't weak. You know, so like you know for you know tiny little electric vehicles or something, you know, aerodynamics absolutely matters there. Shoe covers, the, the similar type thing. You can Did you wear you shoe can, covers at Unbound? No. No. Cuz your I feet did, would get too hot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's like the re- the real world practicality. And like with these socks, they're made by defeat, and they're super comfortable, high compression socks. I'm like, yeah, worst comes to worst, I've just got comfortable socks on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and then we you know aero helmet that still has a bit of airflow. Well, here here's another thing that I've heard people have done. In fact, it's not people; it's a person, and it the driving force behind it. I don't want to take anything away from Kristen Legan, but I believe Nick Legan, tech guru that he is, yeah. made Kristen when she was doing. Unbound, wear the aero helmet in the morning when it was cool. And then he had a second helmet for her when it heated up at an aid station later in the day so mm. that she would gain the ventilation advantages from being in the heat of the day. Is that legal, Nick? I, I mean, she did it. So, <laughs> so you know, there's the there's that thought process behind it you can you can take advantage of of different tools at different times as yeah. well yeah and then well we're talking lower extremities yeah shaving the legs can depending on who you believe that's worth a few seconds yeah right so what about aero booties because i have friends that they will wear them in every single race others that it used to just be you put those on for time trials well why not i mean what's the downside if you're if Fair. you're comfortable in doing it there's no if there's no physiological cost, like overheating on a 12-hour day, yeah, why not? So I, I know neither of you is a physicist, but I'm curious to know if the feet, because they're moving and creating more turbulence, and the, maybe the drivetrain is creating some kind of turbulence, the cranks themselves, if those are parts and places where you should actually focus more in terms of aerodynamics because of the, the fact that they're moving... So, yeah, I'll give you an easy visual to think about. And there's a lot that we could potentially talk about here. But if you think about it, let's say you're on a bike going 30 kilometers an hour. Now, take a look at your feet. So, the the feet are pedaling. There's a certain point where the pedals are actually going backwards. So, they're not going 30 miles. Your foot at that point is not going 30 miles an hour into the wind. It might only be going 10 miles an hour into the wind. But as it comes over the top, that leg has to push forward. So now your foot's going potentially 40, 45 miles an hour into the wind. So that's going to create a little more of a, an aerodynamic drag. It's going to have an impact. Same thing with your, your wheels. If you're going 30 miles an hour, the bottom part of the wheel, as it's actually making contact with the ground, is going essentially zero miles an hour, briefly. But as it comes over the top, the wheel has to accelerate through and come back around you're essentially double the speed. So if you're going 30 miles an hour into a wind, the whole bike, top of the wheel is going 60 miles an hour into that wind. And so that's one of the reasons for the deep dish because those spokes have to cut through the wind. And the higher up on the spoke you go, the further away from the axle, the faster those spokes have to come over the top and cut through that wind. So if you have a deep dish wheel, they're cutting through the wind, but there's less spoke having to cut through the wind. 
and at a slower speed. I know I didn't explain that very well. It's actually much easier to show with a visual, but I hope that that makes sense. Those are two places where I have been told many times that can make a big difference. Wheels make a big difference. Obviously, there's just your, your foot's shaped the way it's shaped. There's not that much you can do with your foot coming over the top of that pedal stroke. Would it be illegal, according to UCI rules, Ben? I know you studied the UCI rule book Nightly. extensively, almost like your Bible sits beside your bed. I can quote it verbatim. <laughs> Chapter and verse. Would there be anything illegal about putting something over your shoe to make it a more aerodynamic shape? Like a teardrop, yes. if a yes, fairing, like, it, it would be considered a fairing at that point, right? Yes. And it's. So why not a helmet? Like, a helmet's a fair. Yes. It's <laughs> money, Chris, is the <laughs> right. short answer. Okay. Gotcha. If you slash your sponsors, your team spend the money to build it as a production product, then it's legal. So if, you're if, saying if, if Specialized made a shoe that was a more aerodynamic shape and started selling it, then it could be used in UCI races. Okay, now you're catching me out because I don't know if this <laughs> okay. applies specifically to shoes, but certainly for bikes and equipment. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be part of the thing. Available. You can't, you can't just like publicly available. Carve something out of clay and glue it to the front of your bike. But if it were in a gravel race, since Game there on. are no rules, Game on. next year at Unbound, Delaney debuts the Arrowfoot. Again, to go to the British, British time trial riders have a lot of fun with homemade mm. but effective options, such as fairings coming off the back of their calves. This is all in time that, trialing that, look that, that they love. Fully redonkulous. <laughs> yes. And which may or may not, you know, dovetail with Trevor's idea that if something's moving faster than the bike, although slower the bike, then it's more important. I don't know. Well, there's the speed relative to the ground, and then there's the vector of the wheel created by it having to travel a greater path, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. There's that, and then there's then there's just like the pocket of air flowing around the whole package. Yep. And yeah, how does that all that play in? I don't know. But right. Know if all the two listeners who are also UCI World Tour racers considering getting seven. faster. There are seven World Tour. You you can't build fairings onto yourselves. <laughs> but well, look, going back to my point. Yeah. Yeah, they've shown the wheels make a big difference, and that's why you see deeper dish wheels because mm -hmm. they they know that works in terms of the effect of your feet coming over the top and going a little faster than the bike and uh, affecting your the wind. I would imagine that's either a uh, gets into those super minor probably makes a difference, but we're talking a small difference. Uh, range and and more importantly, like I said, there's not much you can do about it. You got to pedal. Your feet are there. They're whatever shape they are. So if it has a, a big impact, it is what it is. That being said, when people go for the hour record, they use often speed plays aerodynamically shaped pedal. Yep. Right. For sure. Yep. Um, and that's part of that system down there that's moving around, churning up air constantly. So the more aero it can be, the better. Yeah. But. The question is, yeah. how much are you gaining? For yeah, the hour like, record, everything matters. Yeah, it's power over CDA, power over your aerodynamic yep. drag. Those are your two numbers that you can monkey with. Power is going to hit a certain ceiling. CDA is something you can tinker with. But look, I mean, if you want to attach a fairing, that's going to make a difference. Look at a picture of a duck. The so duck <laughs> flying. Okay. they got these big back ends that kind of bulge out and then, then uh, wrap around. Uh, basically, design a duck butt. Put it on the back of your bike. 
Believe it or not. <laughs> I'm going to do that tonight. <laughs> yeah. So, when so I, we, listeners enter the code DuckButt to get <laughs> 15% off. And I say this, buck, there was actually a guy who designed this, designed a, a water-holding <laughs> system that looked like a duck's butt that went on the back of a bike. Because when you're cutting through the wind, so you, you're thinking about, you know, reducing that frontal area. People who work in aerodynamics also think a lot about what's called that laminar flow. And I know I never pronounce that right. That's it. That's right. But that's the keeping the, the air smooth versus turbulent flow. But you basically cut through that air and the air gets pushed to the side. So you create two pockets of, of higher density air to the sides and you end up with this lower density air right behind you. And that creates a vacuum effect. And if you fill that space with something you can actually go significantly faster. Like a duck butt. Like a duck butt. And that's why part of why groups go faster, right? It's right. The people behind are doing less work, but they're also helping the people in front. If you're the person on the very front, I'm sure if anybody who's done this, if you're in a pack, you can go faster, even though you're the guy on the front, than you could solo. And that's because you do get a drafting effect from the people behind you. So there's my suggestion by a duck butt. <laughs> and it's a wrap. <laughs> We're done. $2,000 duck butt. You're set. It might, cost, it might cost that much to fuse a duck butt onto your butt. I'm getting a duck butt. I've already got the helmet with the visor. I know what to get you for I'm Christmas gonna look this year. so good. Yes. Yeah. The Doofenshmirtz duck butt. I think that's you guys a will right want to make fun of me, but you won't be able to catch me to do it. So it won't matter. This is a great place to segue to a quote that Ben sent me before we recorded this episode. Kind of goes back to clothing, but it also goes back to following somebody around, whether they have a duck butt or not. This is if you refuse to buy new bib shorts, no one will want to see your nasty ass crack showing and will not want to rotate with you. Therefore, new bike shorts will make you faster. Science. <laughs> Science. I disagree. <laughs> Figured you would. That's why I wanted to bring it up. I don't know if I've ever told this story, but the first bike race I ever won, I did you not... You did so by scaring people away with your bib shorts? Yes. Mm. Quite well, so I did not know that if you wash your bib shorts and then dry them, like put them in the washing machine and then put them in the dryer with bounced dryer sheets... It makes your bib shorts transparent. Mm. So I was at a race and everybody started making fun of me because you could see... <laughs> things you didn't want to see. Things you didn't want to see. And I yes. got so annoyed by that, I broke away just so they'd stop commenting on the transparency of my bib shorts. And that was the first bike race I ever won. Okay, but was listeners, it also the last bike race you ever won? Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> we'll have to put this up for a, for a listener poll. Yeah. Which, which is faster and why? Yeah. <laughs> Let's... We bring it, let's bring it all the way back to a relatively serious conversation and close out with some of the bigger ticket items, if you will. Somebody has a lot of money or just wants to invest in a new bike or new equipment to go faster. Yep. There are now bikes that you put in quotes that are a system. They're meant to go fast and every part is optimized and the... The front end is super clean and there aren't round tubes anywhere, et cetera. Or you could go the other way. You love this particular bike and frame, but you want to pack it full of as many aero parts as you can. You wanted to talk about this. What would you say to that person that has the money to invest? Well, if, if you're going from an old school round tube, down tube shifter. Sure. 
you're sitting in an upright position to a full-on aero bike, you know, wheels that are designed as part of the package. Yeah, you could save a couple minutes for sure, again, on that 40K distance. Maybe more than a couple minutes. Maybe more than a couple minutes. <laughs> yeah. I would bet that the person who has a lot of money and the interest to spend a lot of money on a high-end bicycle probably already has one that's pretty darn good right now. So it's definitely diminishing returns, you know, going from like a $3,000 bicycle to a $9,000 bicycle within a similar category. Are the differences measurable? Yes. You know, the speed per dollar spent gets pretty teensy. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, that's not to say don't buy sweet bikes. Bikes are fun and a joy, and there's lots of cool things about having a nice machine. But you don't have the same dollar ratio of speed gained as you would by, say, buying a tight jersey or an aero helmet. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I can put you on the spot. We don't have any sponsors on this show. You're a journalist, so you're completely unbiased and you have no preferences. Well, not preferences. You have no underlying alliances or affiliations with brands. Build us the dream bike for you, Ben Delaney, to go fast in a straight line on a flat road. The dream bike? Uh, <laughs> shoot. Then it's custom something, right? If we're going to talk in dream scenario. To go fast. Let's go to, yeah, let's go to McLaren and like build something redonkulous. Uh, you already used that word. Oh, dang it. You know, so a few years ago, like when Mark Cody and I were telling you aero was everything, we're definitely high on aero bikes because they are quantitatively faster. But we and the industry in general has kind of come back a couple notches. You've got to take the whole package into consideration. Just like the most aero position isn't super sustainable, the most aero bike might not be the best absolute bike. And so if, if, you, if I was able to build my dream bike, it wouldn't be just what is the absolute fastest because the absolute fastest would probably, if we're talking flats, would have a rear disc wheel and like a 90 mil or 100 mil front wheel and, right. you know, and, and the super skinny van ship handlebars. So um, you took my little project I'm just here. Up this, it's just this, screwing uh, it all up. I just sorry, wanted Chris. you to, to throw out some. So, so like some, some like Gucci brands. Yeah, and I don't know. I just thought it might be fun for um, you to be like, oh. I'm going to go to the parts store and pick this and this and this. Or maybe there's just a bike that's, you know, that's as built stock is fantastic. Yeah. The way it is. Sure. that That's easier for me. Like, what are some, some cool aero bikes? I think the Canyon Air Road is a cool aero bike. The fact that you can adjust the handlebars, I thought that was a nice practical way for people who aren't UCI superstars to tinker with what's already an arrow setup for width. And no, that's not why it broke. Uh, un- <laughs> Did you break under- that one too? No, I didn't break this one. Is that the oh, half that's the Vanderpool's break? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, that seemed to be uh, someone just speculating, like wrenched down on the shifter clamp. Over-torqued it. Over-torqued it, or maybe got dinged around or whatever. Like, But it wasn't the expansion part that caused us to break. I think that's a cool bike, and it's not ridiculously expensive because it's consumer direct and it comes with deep TT wheels and yeah I thought that's a that's a good real world fast bike Trex Madone is a good fast bike that also has some comfort built into it so it doesn't ride like the Ridley Noah of old where it was fast but you could also differentiate between a nickel and a dime on the road by how <laughs> stiff that thing was um, 
precision. I think the the new Specialized Tarmac is another good example of bike that has a lot of aero built into it, but is just a great all around mm-hmm. bike. So I think there's that's that's been a cool thing for me to see is that we're able to have some of our aero cake and eat the comfort too to horribly mush that metaphor. About cake. Mushy, <laughs> mushing the Mushy cake. cake. I do have a question for you before I get there. To give you my answer on all this, I'm really careful about looking at the dream bike because I think something that a lot of people forget that you really have to factor in is most of us don't have a support team behind us that's working on our bikes every night. I had that for a couple of years. It was amazing. And then I'd take whatever bike you wanted to give me. Most of my racing career, I'm sitting in a lousy hotel somewhere trying to make sure my bike is staying functional through the race. After putting it in the back of my car for a 20-hour drive or whatever it is, you need a bike that you can deal with, that you can handle. Yeah. And I see a lot of people getting these super fancy bikes now where if they need to raise their handlebars, they got to go to the shop. And I just look at that and go... I crash at a race, something gets knocked out of alignment, I'm now out of the race. So I tend to stick with, you know, I see all these great bikes that they go, well, this little thing saves you that, this little thing saves you this. And I just see impossible to maintain if I'm sitting in a hotel room at night. So I tend to stick with bikes that tend to be a little more traditional that I go, I can do anything I need to do on this bike if it becomes necessary. Giving up speed, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. But you give up a lot of speed if you can't start the race the next day. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, a, a broken bike is not a fast bike, whether that's brand new or 20 years old. Yeah. Sure. So to that end, my bike right now is is seven years old because I won't upgrade to disc brakes. I still want to keep most of it maintainable because same thing. You know, if I'm in a race and they have neutral support, what's the chances of neutral support having the exact sort of disc that I need? to go on my bike, so I stick with the rim brakes. That will switch at some point, and you'll show up with rim brakes. Yeah, and I'll, be, yeah it'll be. I'll have no choice at some point. Yep. But hopefully by then, there's a little more of a standard on the uh, on the disc brakes. But you know, these are important things to, to factor in. And, and same thing, if you have a $9,000 bike and you're in a race, and I'm totally talking as a racer here, so you just spent $9,000 on a bike and you're going into a race that's got a real technical, dangerous crit at the end, you were spending that whole crit going, I don't want to crash this bike. It's $9,000. You have a, a cheaper bike. No, you don't want to crash it and break it, but you can walk away from it. Yep, that's a whole other set of uh, considerations for sure. Right. So yeah. I know I'm, I'm talking from a very specific angle. So I fully get it. You know, I, I see all these people that are out in these $9,000 bikes, and I do think they're probably a much more enjoyable ride. It might be a little bit faster. But I, just, I always look at it from that very practical standpoint of traveling, throwing it in my car, having to maintain it at night. I could crash it. You, know, you, you do a fair amount of racing, you're going to crash a bunch. What, what bike fits better with that? And it tends to be just a good workhorse that's cheap, on the cheaper side. Yep, that's one of the fun things about cycling is like all the different th- things you can optimize for, whether it's going uphill fast or going downhill faster. Yeah, being able to take apart your handlebars and put them in a case to fly on an airplane or get in the back of your car there's yeah there's a lot there and certainly the uh, the things that used to apply just to time trial bikes where fast equals complexity are now applying to some aero road bikes but yeah I, f- I feel like after the first year or two that something comes out we'll usually end up with a more user-friendly system so like integrated bar stems for instance like when those the first 
iteration of that was like the Chinelli Ram. I don't know if you remember that. It looks super cool, but yeah, highly limited. Like you got one position. You could have any position you liked as long as it was the one that the <laughs> designer made. Right. Um, and now we're seeing things where you can, whether it's Cannondale or others, you can make some adjustments to the fit of the thing, but still have the aero benefit of of a mostly integrated system. So yeah, bike designers are bike riders too, for the most part. And uh, sometimes the bike industry will go a touch too far in the pursuit of one goal, and then we'll we'll come back towards like a, a happy medium of having a technical benefit, but still being usable in the real world. Right. So the question I want to ask you is, what do you see? So forget somebody who has unlimited resources and can spend on whatever they spent they can spend on. And look, if somebody has all the money in the world and they want to go buy a ten thousand dollar bike, all the more to them. Great. Yep. Enjoy it. Uh, if I had all the money in the world, I probably would too. But for people who don't have unlimited resources and they're trying to figure out where to spend their money or best spend their money, what are some of the things you see people spending money on where you go, you really, that's a lot of money and you're not gaining that much from it, if anything? One product that I mess with hoping to find the answers to speed, but was frustrated by was a VeloComp Aeropod, which was positioned as like the not the poor man's wind tunnel because it was like 500 bucks, but it's like an aero the sensor. The do-it-yourself wind tunnel yeah. in a way. Yeah, it's a little sensor you put on the front of your bars and then when you take into, it's measuring supposedly like what you are doing and what the world around you is doing and you take the delta and you can, and it's your position accounts for that. I didn't get a lot of <laughs> anything out of that except some frustration. Maybe it's because I'm too simple-minded and not patient enough. But I found like I felt like that wasn't a good use of of my time. I mean, I, I don't think there's any products where I say this is just an absolute stinker. Like as we've been talking about, there's certainly a a range of like here's where you can get a lot of bang for your buck. Shave your legs, that's free. Bend your elbows, that's free. Next level would be tight clothes, socks, booties, helmet, and then the more you spend, the the lesser that impact makes. But if somebody got a sweet new $10,000 aero bike, would I tell them they're an idiot because they're not going to go any faster than they did last year? No. <laughs> I'm going to tell them nice bike, man, or lady, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I can't think of any dangerous products. I'd want to warn people. Mm. Don't waste from. your money on this thing. Yeah. can't think of anything. Yeah. But it's almost more like what's when are you applying these things? I would assume that we're talking about fast is talking about recreational racing, like you're wanting to... When your local crit or your local regional TT or whatever it is, and say sometimes just talking about being faster at the Saturday group ride. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's it's you know you'll see people busting out a ton of aero equipment on a coffee ride. Okay, maybe they're not setting any land speed records, but it's like taking a sports car for a country drive thing. You don't have to be always going for an absolute land speed record to have fun toys. So. Okay, so let's just take. Typical rider, they might do a little bit of racing. They do the group ride on the weekends. They don't have the $10,000 bike. They're also not on the Huffy. So let's say there's something in the, on something in the $3,000 range. Yeah. You know, decent wheels, kind of just mid-tier, maybe Altegra level bike. Yeah, great. And they just went to the supermarket, bought a, a scratch ticket, won $1,500. And like, I'm putting all this into my bike. What would you tell them to get? Well, I mean, this is going to sound like pandering talking to a couple of coaches or a coaching company, but yeah, working with an expert on your body, I think, pays the biggest dividends, whether that's like a, a 
if you've never had a bike fit going to a pro, that's totally worth it because you can, I mean, you know the benefits. You've probably extolled these benefits on the podcast many times, but plus it's just more enjoyable. If you're, you know, Pete Stetton, it was just his last comment was talking about a happy racer is a fast racer. And he was talking more about the, the psychological uh, effects of like when you're a good place mentally, you go faster. But I think like Pearl Zumi had a great ad years ago with a picture of a donkey with a scarf wrapped around it. It's like a, a warm ass is a happy ass. And it's like, <laughs> but like when you're sitting on a bike, a, a comfortable ass is a fast ass too. So like the, the more you can make your bike a comfortable place to be, the more fun you'll have and the faster you'll go. So that would be my recommendation of spending money on yeah, getting fit and working with a coach on how to make yourself a, a faster cyclist. That's Plus that's a fun way to do it and that can help inform all the rest of the, the choices that you make and, that's a good point. That's that's where I'd go with a bunch of it. And yeah, then the helmet, clothes, wheels. We didn't even talk about gauges of any kind, power meters and, and things like that. They're not maybe what you initially think of when you think of aerodynamics, but they can certainly make you faster. And it, yes. and it, and it goes into that conversation about improving you through coaching yes. and using some of these tools to help with that process. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's also a, a recommendation of, yeah. Power meter, heart rate monitor, computer, those things, since we don't have wind tunnels ourselves, those are great tools to see whether something is working or not, whether that's your last block of training or right. your super Gucci wheels you just bought. Mm -hmm. Well, you've never been here before in this studio on this show, but we always, you've probably listened to an episode at least, one of Fast Talk, maybe? Sure. <laughs> I've listened to all of them. He never got to the end, though, so he doesn't know what's coming. It's very simple. You throw me out the window? What, how does throw, this end? We throw you how out the window, window and we oh growl, bye-bye, Dorkenheimer, <laughs> or whatever. Doofenshmirtz to Doofenshmirtz. you. <laughs> no, this is where we do our one-minute take-home. We put you on the clock. You've got 60 seconds to encapsulate all of the great advice and maybe even expand on it in some way what we've just spoken about. What are the key and most poignant points to this conversation today, Ben Delaney? Yeah, going faster. Mm, oh, the pressure, the pressure. 50, uh, 49, 48. Changing your body is the most cost-effective way to go fast, whether through in training or just the shape of your body. You can also buy your way fast with gear. There are cheap things you can do, such as wearing tight clothing and a up through reasonable things like aero helmet, wheels, tires, clean chain are, are ways you can buy your way to speed. And then the more you spend, the, the less benefit you get, such as a $15,000 bicycle. Right. Trevor, what's your take home today? I feel like for my take home, I should go get the helmet with the visor and just put it on for you guys and get a picture. <laughs> duck butt. Duck butt. <laughs> That's duck actually butt. a pretty good uh, take home. I am honestly not certain I have anything of value to contribute to this conversation because <laughs> you know where I stand in all this. Get off your lawn. I, I will leave it at, I guess my suggestion is just, yeah, I agree with you. If you have the money, $10,000 bike, why not? It's gorgeous. It's enjoyable. You'll feel good on the group rides. I My one minute is just to talk from kind of the, the workhorse rider who goes to a lot of races, does a lot of travel, that sort of thing. Make sure that when you're looking at all this gear and saying, this is going to save me this much time and that's going to save me that much time, you aren't ending up with something that you can't 
handle that you can't maintain unless you're taking it to some specialty shop to take care of it for you. Make sure it's it's a bike that's going to do what you need it to do. And for me, like I said, I would not own the $10,000 bike because I would not be able to maintain it on the road. I would be scared to race on it. So I might give up a little speed, but I need that workhorse bike. Chris? I think my take-home would be very similar to Ben's, and I would reiterate how cool and inspiring it is to look at galleries of people's bikes at whether it's British time trial series or the hill climb championships. I know it's a different type of speed, but they have this incredible mentality about kind of being at home innovative. It doesn't matter what it kind of looks like. It's just a matter of whether it improves something about whether it's comfort, position, performance, or just kind of to be different and try and experiment. And I think it's cool to have that mentality. It, it's not about the money you spend. It's about ultimately this episode is about going faster. And there's a lot of different ways you can get to that same place. You can throw a bunch of money at that problem, or you can completely go the opposite direction and tinker and tinker and tweak and tweak and fiddle and all that. And um, I guess either way, you can gain something by thinking about it and having the right mentality about going faster, regardless of what means you have. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Mr. Ben Delaney and Mr. Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.